0: Revelation chapter 17, we're going to read verses 6 through eight and then we're going to skip down to verse 15 and read into chapter 18 verse 8. And this this is our main text that we're reading from, but we're kind of going to be all over Revelation a little bit this morning. And um, what 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 I thought was going to be a one sermon you know detour, about what Babylon is and Babylon means, has turned into a three-part sermon series. So that, that should tell you something about the many rabbit trails that I take. <laughs> and then, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, we should be back in Zechariah, picking up where we left off, in Zechariah chapter 6. But if you have Revelation 17, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Let's get down to verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot Make her desolate and naked, and eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Down into 18. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath, of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup, which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Lord, this word comes to us as a shock in some cases. Lord, this word comes to us as something that's hard to understand. And we ask, Father, that you would make it understandable. We ask, Father, that you would make this text intelligible through the lens of the gospel. And we ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I listened to Revelation chapter eighteen this week, out of the uh, new ta- out of the audio recording of the New Testament that Johnny Cash made, and if you've never listened to the Book of Revelation read by Johnny Cash, you really should. He he puts his voice has a way of putting you right there. And we're in Revelation 17 and 18 again this morning, but just a few chapters before in Revelation 13, there is a description of two beasts, and that chapter describes their power and authority over the earth. But then then in chapter 14, we get a picture of the 144,000 who are a representation of the church. Now, make no mistake in your interpretation of Revelation that this 144,000 are not Literal Jews, they are not. Uh, they, they are not uh, some subset of special people. The 144,000 is a metaphorical representation of God's people. And Revelation 14:4 4 says that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And the next verse says that in their mouth there was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. <laughs> Now, when we move fast and when we get into Revelation 17, we see that the great harlot, of uh, the great whore of Babylon, is drinking the blood of the martyrs. She is celebrating the death of those people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. She is celebrating the death of those people who stood for the truth of the gospel. But as we keep reading, we find that her victory is short-lived as the beast turns on her, strips her naked, eats her flesh, and burns her with fire. Now, last week I mentioned that evil is not a philosophical concept that stands on its own. It can only twist something that's good, pure, and holy and pervert it into something that's no longer good, pure, and holy. And C.S. Lewis illustrates this for us. He makes it plain for us in in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, To be evil, a person must exist and have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good. Therefore, he must be getting from a good power, namely God. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? That it is not a mere story for children? It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given to it by its goodness. All the things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things. Resolution, cleverness, good looks, and even existence itself. I bring all of this up because the concept of evil, the concept of evil is not sustainable on its own, which is what we see whenever the beast turns on the great harlot. The evil and sin that we see in the world around us isn't sustainable on its own. Eventually it folds in on itself like a cheap suit. And we see this in Revelation 17 where the great harlot is on top of the world one minute, but then she's being devoured by the beast the next minute. Last week we saw how Babylon imitates the bride, and this morning we're going to see how the beast imitates Christ. And then we're going to look at the call to come out of Babylon. And so let's first look at how the beast imitates Christ, if you're looking at your outline on the back. Now, if you'll notice, also I'll, I, I included an insert from uh, uh, The Returning King, A Guide to Revelation by Vern Poitras. I'll get to this insert in a minute. Uh, but, it, but basically, this is, this is how Vern Poitras, a Presbyterian theologian, he helps us see how the beast imitates Christ. Vern Poitras provides a pretty extensive list of ways that the beast imitates Christ and I've, and, and um, you can see there that there's about ten points and I'm not going to run through all of it, uh, but I wanted to include I wanted to include that for your help because sometimes you have to defer sometimes you when I say you I mean me sometimes you have to defer to people who are smarter than you are, and Vern Poitras is much smarter than I am <laughs> So even though this list contains about 10 points of comparison, I simply want to walk through about three of these points because these are the points that I feel like are pressing the body of Christ the most during this time. Now, we often hear that imitation is a form of flattery, and it is in some cases, but it's not where the beast is concerned. Where the beast is concerned, imitation is a form of blasphemy and mockery. One of the, one of the things that we should assume is that the beast that the woman is riding on in Revelation 17 is the same beast that we see at the beginning of Revelation 13. So I want us to look back at Revelation 13 and see how there's a clear imitation or a clear mockery of Christ. First of all, there's an imitation of the worthiness of Christ's name. At the end of Revelation 13one we we're told that the beast has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his heads is, upon one of his heads is a blasphemous name. But notice what we see about Jesus in Revelation 19 when he appears. In Revelation 19, what we see is that, uh, he is, is that John sees heaven standing open and there is before him a white horse. So John sees this white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Well, that's Jesus. And with justice he wages, and with, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And on his robe is, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Revelation 19, 11 through 13 and then verse 16. So in Revelation 13, the beast has blasphemous names written on him, but Jesus in Revelation 19 has holy names written on him. And so we get a glimpse at some of those names. Jesus is called the Word of God. Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so that begs the question, if those are the names written on Jesus, what are those blasphemous names written on the beast? Well, what Bryce Morgan tells us is that the names written on the beast are actually similar to the names that Jesus has written on himself. But they're blasphemous because they're attributed to the beast. Bryce Morgan tells us that the opening verse of this chapter reveals that the beast is tattooed with blasphemous names. So what might these names be? They must have been all the titles of the Roman emperors that they used for themselves. See, the Roman emperors called themselves names like Curios, which is Lord, Soter, which is Savior, Diviphilius, which is Son of God, Sebastos, which is one to be revered, and even Divas, Deus, and Theos, which all mean God. While most emperors were only deified upon their death, we learn from a historian, Suetonius, that Domitian, the emperor who was reigning at the time when John wrote Revelation, He took it a step farther. He demanded to be deified even while he served in office. And so whenever whenever his soldiers would go around doing his bidding, they would say, our master and our God bids this done, in reference to Domitian, the emperor. Now, you hear all this and think, well, we're too civilized for that now. We don't worship our leaders now. But au contraire. See, this brings up the question, well, who's the beast? Is it the Roman Empire? Is it an entity? Is it a person? And the answer to to that question is yes. It's a person. It's an entity. It's an empire. Last week we used Sam Storm's definition of Babylon and said that Babylon is found wherever and whenever there is satanically inspired deception and idolatry. Babylon is the symbol of all worldly entrenched opposition to Jesus Christ. And so the same is true of the beast. The beast is any person or system that endorses the ethics and attitudes of rebellion against Christ. So what John is seeing in the vision mostly applies to Rome, because that was the empire that was doing all of the oppressing at the time. And that's the empire that deified their emperors. They called Caesar the king of kings and the lord of lords. Of course, we don't think we do this in our culture. We think we're too civilized to do such a thing. So let me give you three examples of things that actually occurred within the last few years. Number one, a pastor in Mississippi named Shane Vaughn said on a video that Donald Trump carries the prophetic seal of the calling of God and that Donald Trump is the Messiah of America. Number two, a man named Helgard Mueller wrote a book called President Donald J. Trump, The Son of Man, The Christ. And this is what he said about Trump in the introduction of his book. He said, President Trump is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the son of man who will be seated at the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. You have, you have read that correctly. President Donald Trump is the Christ for this age. Now listen, if that doesn't make your stomach turn, then you need to get right with God. Every year at Dallas First Baptist Church, they have what they call Freedom Sunday on the Sunday before the Fourth of July, where they sing patriotic songs about America and they have a service completely dedicated to the idea that America is the greatest nation on earth. And they usually invite some Republican politician to come and give the message that morning. One year it was Donald Trump, one year it was Mike Pence, another year it's it's Ben Carson. And when they did their Freedom Sunday service one year, Robert Jeffress, the pastor, actually got up and said, "We're not worth." worshipping America, we're worshiping the God who has blessed America. Listen. If I were there, I would have stood up and said, "Listen, dummy, if you have to clarify to people in your church that you're actually worshiping God, then you're probably not worshiping God." I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but it should be evident in your church that you're worshiping God on Sunday morning. There should be no mistake made about what you're doing. Your church should not look like a CPAC event, it shouldn't look like a political rally, it shouldn't look like a rock concert, it should look like the worship of God. And so whenever you replace sacred music with music that celebrates a world empire, and you replace a gospel message with a political speech that tries to get you to vote a certain way, then you've reached the place of full-blown idolatry, okay? Chris Lindsay is right when he says that we have lost the ability to see the line between, between patriotism and idolatry. What all of this amounts to is a mockery of the true worship of God and of the mockery of Christ. And so when we ask the question, where is the beast? Is the beast some far-off figure? Is the beast just something that happened in Rome before the destruction of Jerusalem? No, the, the beast is all of those things. The beast is all of those things, and it demands our worship, and it demands our attention. And so next we see how the beast imitates Christ in the form of death and resurrection. Look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, notice what it says. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. I remember when I was younger, I used to like the left-behind books and movies. And then after I grew up and started reading and studying the book of Revelation and really studied the whole Bible for myself, I came to realize that the left-behind books should, in fact, be left-behind. They assume an unbiblical view of the end times that doesn't take into account the historical and cultural context that Revelation was written in. But I remember one scene in the Left Behind movie where Nikolai Carpathia, who is depicted as the Antichrist beast character, he is stabbed in the head with a blade by someone whose goal was to assassinate him. And his body lied dead for three days, and then he miraculously resurrected on the third day. And then after he makes his recovery, his popularity all over the world surged. And I think that particular scene in Left Behind is helpful in one way, because it's a fantastic analogy of how the beast in Revelation 13 seeks to make a mockery of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And I think we can draw that conclusion from the fact that the word wounded in Revelation 13 is the same Greek word that gets translated as slaughtered whenever we refer to Jesus as the lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. But like all analogies, there's some glaring holes in it. And one of the big glaring holes is that, the, is that in the analogy, what we said earlier, the beast is not a single person, power, or entity. It's not something that's off in the future somewhere, nor is it simply a metaphor for a historical moment. It can be anything that seeks to imitate and replace Christ, because that's what the beast does. The beast will do anything to assume Christ's place on the throne and be worshiped which leads us to the next verse in Revelation 13:4. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, "Who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him?" Notice how the people worship the beast. They said, "Who is like the beast?" Now that kind of language should sound familiar to you in the context of worship. Because if you know the Bible, then you should know exactly where this comes from. It's a mockery of the Song of Moses that we used earlier in the call to worship from Exodus 15. Because when they worshipped God for bringing them out of Egypt, here's what they said. They said, Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? In Exodus 15, the people of Israel say, Who is like you, O Lord? But in Revelation 13, the worshipers of the beast say, Who is like the beast? Now, just like when I mentioned Dallas First Baptist earlier, they weren't worshiping in a way that said, Who is like you, O Lord? Instead, they were saying, Who is like you, O America? Like the worshipers of the beast say, Who is like the beast? So what we've seen so far is how the Babylon imitates the bride and the beast imitates Christ. Finally, what we need to see is we need to see this call away from Babylon. Look at Revelation 18 again, Revelation 18, 1 through 4 specifically. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is is fallen and has become a dwelling place. Of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. So Babylon's end has come, and this is important to note. The warning that's here in Revelation 18 is that Babylon has fallen. Come out. The warning is not, get out of Babylon while while you still can, because it's about to fall. And I think that's interesting. The falling of Babylon is something that is portrayed as either past or present in the text. It's not presented as something futuristic. So what this tells me... Is that this is something that we always ought to be seeing. If Babylon is, as we said earlier, worldly entrenched opposition to Christ, then we ought to be aware of the fact that God is constantly calling his people away from worldly entrenchment against Christ. We see this going back to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, Paul is preaching to an audience made up primarily of Jews who have professed faith in Jesus as their King and Messiah, and they're living under the persecution of the Roman Empire, and they're living under the persecution of their fellow Jews who don't see Jesus as their Messiah. Now, if the Messiah was just this spiritual Dalai Lama-type figure, then no harm, no foul, as far as the Romans are concerned. But the problem is that being Messiah means also being King. And so when you've got a culture that worships their kings and emperors as as gods, like the Roman Empire did, then the idea of another king who comes along is a threat to their rule. So Paul's audience in Hebrews is made up of people who are being tempted to abandon their belief in Jesus as the true king and messiah and go back to being normal, humdrum, messiahless Jews in Jerusalem so that they can avoid persecution. And what Paul says in Hebrews 10.27 is that there's going to be a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God if you go back to Jerusalem. And what he's describing there is the destruction of Jerusalem that will occur in 70 AD. And what we see in Revelation chapter 18 is that Babylon has fallen. The vultures are circling and their final destruction is imminent. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but if you look at Revelation 18, I want you to notice four verses in that one chapter that emphasize how sudden and how quickly Babylon's end will come. Notice first, notice first verses 7 and 8. In the measure that she gloriously, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. In in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Notice the beginning of verse 8. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Now notice verse 10, or the end of verse 10. Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Notice the beginning of verse 17. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Now notice the end of verse 19. Alas, alas, that great city, which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. In verse 8 it says one day, and in verses 10, 17, and 19 it says one hour. Listen. We have seen the stock market crash in 1929. We have seen the recession in 2008. We have seen grown men on Wall Street collapse into tears because they lost everything in an instant. And we have probably seen some, and we will probably see some of those things happen again. Do you know why? Because the world's value system is not sustainable on any level. I'll say that again. The world's value system is not sustainable on any level. We need to understand that our faith has real implications for every aspect of our lives. We can't just shove everything related to our faith in a little box and keep that box closed until Sunday while we do other stuff throughout the week. The reason the world's economy is on the verge of collapse all the time is because we don't value God enough to make our financial decisions based around how he would want us to use our money. The reason our political landscape is in chaos because we value our own personal agendas, ideals and traditions more than the values that are proclaimed in the word of God. That's why when you that's why when you went to the polls in 2020, the top two presidential candidates were either an adulterer or a suspected pedophile. And you say, "Well, I had to vote for somebody." No, you didn't. You could have just stayed home and boycotted both candidates until a candidate came along who, who exemplified biblical morals and principles. But nobody did that because most American Christians value being American more than they value being a Christian. And because they value being American more than they value being a Christian, they're willing to sacrifice more for their American sentimentalities than they are for their Christian beliefs. Let's face it, we're too cozy and comfortable. In Babylonian exile, God's people were under scrutiny because of their faith. But when they were allowed to go back home to Jerusalem, they, they could have they when they were allowed to go back home to Jerusalem, they lived in ease and comfort because no one was after them anymore. But they laid the foundations of the temple, and for fourteen years they got too comfortable and they got too cozy. And they got cozy in their nice houses, and their comfort caused them to be utterly useless. And so God started allowing their comforts to dry up. Their money went into a bag with holes. Their crops failed. They didn't get returns on their investments. God dried up their comforts so that he could get their attention, so that they could do what he had called them to do and be the people that he had called them to be. And in, in modern American society, living for God has not placed us under the same scrutiny that God's people were under in Babylon. And we have infinitely more comforts than what they had. And if all their comforts made them ineffective, how much more ineffective are we with all of our comforts? Martin Lloyd-Jones He said, as I understand it, and it seems to me to be an inevitable piece of logic and interpretation, that there is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a Christian in name only. In calling us out of Babylon, God also calls for Babylon to come out of us. He calls us out of our pride, our ease, our lust, our anger, our self-centeredness, our desire for more, and our misplacement of our values and priorities and a whole host of other sins. God calls us away from seeing and valuing things the way the world sees and values things. Now, I wanted to end this sermon this morning with a clever story or a lengthy quote from a pastor or theologian who's much more clever than I am, but I feel after going through everything I just went through, the only conclusion I can give you this morning is one that we should, always, that we should already be familiar with coming out of Ash Wednesday a few months ago from Joel chapter 2, 13 and 14. Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And who knows if he will not, and who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? There's nothing left for us to do but turn back to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And this is hard for some of us to swallow, but it is reality nonetheless. And so, Lord, would you implant this in our hearts and minds and let us be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit who works your word into our hearts and souls. We ask it all in your Son's name. Amen.